Good morning. Let's open our Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and chapter 9. We'll be in the last few verses of chapter 8 and the first half of chapter 9 this morning. As you're turning there, um, just so you know who I am, my name is Mitchell Slater. I'm one of the members here at River Oaks. I'm not one of the pastors. If you want to talk to myself or one of our uh, pastors here, they'll be up front afterwards if you want to talk or pray with one of us. If you're visiting with us, it is our joy to be able to worship with you this morning. We want to make sure that you know that you are welcomed. And if you haven't been here for our study in Ecclesiastes up to this point, if you just need a refresher, our passage this morning starts off with really a summary of the whole book. So here's a little review. And if you want to know what the book of Ecclesiastes is about, these last two verses of chapter 8 are the whole book in a nutshell. Solomon says this, When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Solomon is saying that he has tried to give thought to the way the world works, and he's come up empty. He says, I can't figure it out. The wisest man who ever lived besides Jesus says, I can't figure out the way this world works. I can't figure out the way my life works. Why do things happen the way they do? And the word that he uses for this is hevel. Our translations have vain or meaningless, but it means life is mysterious and frustrating. We cannot understand it. We can't get a grasp on it. He says, even if a wise man claims to know, he says, don't believe him. We cannot figure out all that God is doing, the work of God in the world. And in this text, he's going to show us that the greatest riddle of life is ultimately death itself. So let's read the rest of this text. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. Hear now the words of God. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It's the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, the wicked or to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. 
Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. Because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to the Lord for help and prayer. Father, we thank you that we can come to your throne of grace to find help in a time of need. And we can come knowing that you hear us because we come through Jesus Christ in his name, the only mediator between God and man. We know that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. So illuminate this text to our minds and our hearts this morning. Open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things in your law because we cannot live by bread alone but by every word that comes from your mouth. So feed us now with your holy scriptures and by the Holy Spirit, please lift up Christ and highly exalt him that his glorious gospel may be proclaimed. So pray that you would be mighty to save this morning that you'd be mighty to sanctify and build up your church and ultimately to glorify your name. So not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory for your steadfast love and faithfulness. Amen. There's a new trend that has been spreading across Europe over the last few years, and it's starting to come to America as well. It was started by a sociologist from Switzerland, which is a hard sentence to say, and they're called cafe mortels, or in English, death cafes. That sounds cheery, right? So these aren't really places, they're events where just complete strangers come together at a cafe, they get something to drink, something to eat, and they talk about death. And not just death in general, but they talk about their own death, their own mortality. And there's been eight to 9,000 of these events over the last just two or three years. And I think the reason that they're becoming so popular is because we live in a culture in the West that is in denial about death. We don't like to think about it. We don't like to see it. We try to push death out of our mind and push it onto the peripheries of our society, but we don't want to see it or hear it or smell it or think about it. We're in denial. But people know, right? We can't ignore it forever. We are going to die, and people know that they need to talk about it. They need to discuss it with someone, because that's a matter of most importance for all of us. In our text this morning, it feels like Solomon is inviting us into his 
Café Mortel, his death café. And he wants us to sit down and have a drink and discuss our own mortality. And as he sits across the table from us, his message to us is this. The bitterness of death helps us taste the sweetness of life. The bitterness of death helps us taste the sweetness of life. In a sense, it can cleanse our palate so that we can enjoy life the way it's truly meant to be enjoyed, the way God intended it to be. And as we jump into this passage and break it down, I want you to notice the structure. We have a word about death on either side and then a glorious passage about life right in the middle. So smart people would call that an inclusio or a chiasm. I call it a sandwich. So we're going to be digging in from the outside in in this death sandwich this morning. Um, so that's how we'll be looking at the text. So we're going to start off looking at the bitterness of death, and that will lead us to taste the sweetness of life. And he shows us four bitter evils about death. First, that, that death is a mystery. Verses 1 through 3 of chapter 9. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise in their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It's the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. <laughs> as the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Death is the ultimate mystery. And even the faithful who are held in the very hand of God cannot escape it. He says whether it's love or hate, we don't know. He's talking from an earthly perspective because we who know the truth of the eternal gospel can praise God that we know how he loves us, that Christ demonstra or God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We know that truth. But if we're just looking on a horizontal earthly perspective, whether God loves someone or hates someone, who knows? Bad things happen to everyone and the worst thing happens to everyone Death. And this is frustrating to Solomon. He sees that the same event happens to all. That the righteous and the wicked, the good guys and the bad guys, the nice and the nasty, they all face death. And he calls this a great evil. Think about it. Both the Polish Jew in Auschwitz and the Fuhrer himself, Adolf Hitler, met the same fate in the end. On 9-11, it was both the radical terrorists and the first responders who lost their lives. And this frustrates Solomon. And I know it frustrates us because the grave, it shows no favoritism. Death is a great mystery. Second, death is a penalty. The last half of verse 3. He says, Also the hearts of the children of man, literally the children of Adam, 
are full of evil. And madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. So that's not a verse we'll probably see stitched on a pillow, right? We're not going to see that on t-shirts. I mean, we could say it as, we're all evil and crazy, and then we die. It's not the most cheery news, right? And this description of humanity, it might make us feel uncomfortable, but it's absolutely true. We tend to think about evil only in terms of the big stuff, like slavery or genocide, and those things are truly, truly evil. But it goes wider than that and and deeper than that. Evil is lying to a friend or cheating on a test, stealing a pack of gum, gossiping about a neighbor, or refusing to worship your creator. God's standard for evil is so much higher than ours, and every single one of us has fallen short, not just in our actions, he says, but in our hearts, at the very core of our being, of who we are. The evil of death is ultimately a result of the evil of sin. And it's not just evil, he says, that's in our hearts, but madness. Sin isn't just bad, it's crazy. To think that high treason against the creator of the cosmos could ever succeed is utter madness. This is the insanity of sin. The grave is ultimately God's just verdict against human rebellion. Death is a penalty. Third, death is a finality. It's final in verses 4 through 6. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, (laughs) and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Life is the giver of opportunity, while death is the ultimate finality. The grave brings our lives to a screeching halt. And at death, our love, our hate, and our envy, they're all gone. That means everything that mattered to us, everything we cared about, everything we wanted is lost in a moment. And even the memory of us will be gone. It says the memory of them will be forgotten. So if you really wanted an encouraging thought... This morning, just realize that when you die after a few generations, no one will remember you. That's, that's not, it doesn't seem very encouraging, Solomon, right? But think back in your own family, three or four generations back, how many people can you name? I could name a couple at the third, at the fourth. I pretty much come up dry. And that is why it's better to be a living dog than a dead lion. Don't you love that verse? It's a good verse. I like it. Now remember, 3,000 years ago, dogs were not man's best friends. They weren't cute little fluffy, you know, puppy dogs. 
These were dirty and dangerous scavengers. If you've been to a third world country, you've probably seen what he's talking about. So we might say, it's better to be a living coyote than a dead lion. Why is that good? Because life is better than death. Because the living have hope. They still have a life to live. As long as you have breath in your lungs, there's hope for you. Now, Solomon, he's not denying the afterlife here. He's been accused by that. But he's not. He says throughout this book clearly that there will be a day of judgment. That God has put eternity in our hearts. You'll see in a few chapters that when we die, our bodies go to the ground and our spirits return to the Lord. Now his view of the afterlife may have been fuzzy. Not fully in focus. But he believed in it. No, he's showing us the perspective of life under the sun. Life here and now. And in that perspective, death is the ultimate end. When someone that we know dies, from our perspective, they're gone, right? Death is a finality. And fourth, death is a certainty. (laughs) Going to the other side of the sandwich here, verses 11 and 12. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Life is so often surprising, right? Things don't work out the way we think they should. There's so many uncertainties in our lives. But there is one thing that is certain. It's the only thing that we can be 100% sure of. And that is the fact that we are going to die. And despite the fact that death is certain, it so often comes as the greatest surprise of all. Because we don't know when our time will come, right? Like a, like a fish that's suddenly hooked, like a bird that suddenly feels the buckshot, right? It will come to us when we least expect it. Time and chance, literally time and happenings will happen to us all. Don't let the one certainty in life catch you by surprise. Now, if, if there's no solution to the bitterness of death, then we could never transition to the sweetness of life. The grave, it so often casts a dark shadow across even our highest joys. And if we are afraid to die, then we will be afraid to live. We need to be rescued from the fear of death. So turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. Excuse me. I 
I think Solomon would have loved to hear these words from Hebrews 2. We'll be in, at the end of the chapter in verses 14 through 18. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that is Jesus, likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. That's the good news. That's the good news that Solomon knew in part and we know more fully and one day we'll know completely in glory. But it's not just the good news. We see the bad news there, right? The news that Solomon, he's already told us about that we have sinned because we're children of man, we're children of Adam, that in Adam all die. Our hearts are filled with evil, with sin, and because of that, we have earned for ourselves an eternal death penalty. And Satan, he is the accuser of the brethren. And he comes before God against us, bringing our sins and saying that we deserve death. And apart from Christ, he's right. He is absolutely correct. But that is why it says that Christ took on flesh and blood. That is, he became a man. He didn't become like one of the angels. He became as one of us, like us in every way, except without sin. And on the cross, it says, he made propitiation for the sins of the people. That is, he made a sacrifice that atones for sin and that turns away and satisfies God's righteous anger and wrath against us. We sang it today, right? On the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And so now Jesus in heaven can show his hands and his feet and his side and say their sins have been paid for. They are no longer slaves to the fear of death. They are free. Did you hear that glorious word that Lydia read for us? We have been set free from the law of sin and death. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who rose Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. On the cross, Jesus took the evil of sin and the evil of death upon himself and went into the grave and came out the other side victorious over sin and Satan, death and the grave, hell and the wrath of God. And now he is our risen and reigning redeemer and king and he offers salvation to everyone. So if you don't know him today, come to him now. The first words Jesus ever said in his ministry, repent and believe the good news. Turn from your sin and put your trust in Christ. Because there are joys in this passage that we're about to delve into, but you cannot enter into the joys of this passage if you have not entered into Jesus Christ. So come to him. Come to God through 
his son. If you do know him, lean into this truth. Rest in the reality of what Christ Jesus has done for you. You have been set free from the fear of death and you have been given the joys of eternal life, life that starts now and goes on forever. He has given you the joy of your salvation. So hear these words and look to Christ more and more. So we've seen the bitterness of death. Now let's taste the sweetness of life. Let's read again these glorious words in chapter 9, verses 7 through 10. Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in shale to which you are going. So these are good, beautiful words. But, but how do they fit with what we've just been looking at? How does the bitterness of death help us taste the sweetness of life? How does it work? Well, I think an old dead guy can help us. Dr. Samuel Johnson, an 18th century scholar, said this. Depend upon it, sir. When a man knows he is to be hanged in a fortnight, it concentrates his mind wonderfully. A fortnight is two weeks, by the way. So let's do a thought experiment. You're given two weeks to live. No way of getting out of it. It's certain. You have two weeks. What would you do? How would you live your life? What would matter most to you in those two weeks? Who would you want to spend your time with? What would you say to your friends and your family? What are ways that you waste time that would become to you utter foolishness? What are the sins that so tempt you now that would completely lose their seduction? What are some current problems in your life that would absolutely shrink in comparison? With two weeks left to live, you would treasure every single moment you have left. You would see every heartbeat as a gift and every breath as invaluable. And Solomon is screaming at you, live like that now. Notice the first word, go. Look at it. He says, go. This is his sixth exhortation to joy in this book. Remember last week, he said, and I commend joy. And he just keeps coming back around to it. He can't leave it alone. He can't stop. He says, go. Yes, we've thought about death. We've thought about our own obituary a little bit. But now, get up and go. Take joy in the life God has given you. And he's given us three examples of how to enjoy 
life. <laughs> these aren't exhaustive. These are just the, the main facets of our life. Think of it as God's bucket list for you. He says to enjoy food and drink, marriage and relationships, and work and vocation. Now, these seem like commands that we could really get into, right? Enjoy a meal, enjoy my wife. I'm good to go on this, right? But these may be more difficult and more counterintuitive than we initially think. So if you think about food and drink, only 40% of Americans eat a meal with their families at most three times a week. And 10% of those never eat a meal with their families. We've traded table fellowship for fast food on the go and convenience. Think about our marriages. We, we can talk about the divorce rate that has caused so much pain. Or we can talk about marriages that started off great and now you feel like you're just struggling to hold it together. We need to hear these words. Or our relationships. We live in a disembodied society now where people can have hundreds of relationships on social media and interactions with them and go days without ever seeing a human face or having a real conversation. Or our work, right? We're all on the spectrum between slacker and workaholic, right? We're all somewhere on that spectrum. We need to hear Solomon's advice to us. Because when we remember that we are mere mortals, we can stop wishing for a different life and enjoy the one that God has given us today. So to jump in, what do we do about this phrase? Look in verse 7 at the end. God has already approved what you do. What do we do with that? Is he saying that we can do whatever we want to do? That we should just party it up and sleep around because God, he gives his thumbs up to that, right? He approves of what you do. No, of course that's not what he's saying. That's not real joy. Solomon has already showed us that earlier in the book. He said, I had a thousand wives. I had all the wine that money could buy. And you know what? He says, it left me empty. It left me dry. That is not true joy and satisfaction. No, he's saying that God has approved our enjoyment of this life. He approves us to enjoy his good gifts. When did we, when did we see him approving this? Where's his stamp of approval? I think it's in Genesis 1. After each day of creation, God looks at what he made and he says, it is good. At the end of the week, he looks at it and says, it is very good. And think, in Eden, before sin, before the fall of man, God gave Adam all three of these gifts. He gave him food, right? He said, you can eat the fruit of all the trees except one. He gave him a wife with Eve. And he gave him work to do, to subdue the earth and, and have dominion. God gave us physical bodies. 
in a physical world to enjoy his physical gifts. So don't be more spiritual than God. So think of it this way. So on, on Christmas, if I get gifts for my kids, uh, they were in first service, their eyes lit up at that one. Uh, I get them the thing that I know they really want and they open it up. What do I expect them to do? What do I want? Do I want them to say, oh, thank you, Father. I really appreciate this gift. I'm going to sit here and think about how grateful I am for you getting me this gift. That is not the reaction I'm expecting from my kids. I'm expecting a quick, thanks, Pop, and then rip into that thing, play their hearts out. That's what I want. Because my pleasure in giving the gift becomes their pleasure. And their enjoyment of the gift becomes my enjoyment. And God, he wants us to enjoy his good fatherly gifts. So first, he commands us to enjoy a good meal. Can I get an amen on that? There we go. Go and eat a meal. You guys are going to get hungry as we go, so I'll try to wrap it up. Verse 7. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart. Yes, he said wine. Now you can fill in the blank here, right? Enjoy your Chick-fil-A sandwich with joy and drink your sweet tea with a merry heart. Right? Eat your pancakes with joy and drink your milk with a merry heart. Right? He's just saying enjoy a good meal. Bread and wine, they were just the ordinary food of the day. And yes, Fasting is part of the Christian life, but so is feasting. So dress like you're going to a feast. That's the point of verse 8. He says, Let your garments be always white, and let not oil be lacking on your heads. See, in Scripture, if you wear sackcloth and ash, that's a picture of your mourning and sorrow. But if you wear white clothes, that's a picture of joy. And celebration, that's not what you wear to a funeral. That's what you wear to a party. And he says, let not oil be lacking on your head. The Bible talks about Jesus being anointed with the oil of gladness, another picture of joy. So he's saying, look the part and smell the part. Dress like you're going to a celebration, to a feast. Because mealtime merrymaking and the kingdom of God go hand in hand. The Apostle Luke said that, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they called him a glutton and a drunkard. What was the last thing he did before he died? He got his friends together, drank wine, and break bread. Now there is so much more to that. There is deep, deep, redemptive and covenantal significance in that meal. But at its base, he said, before I die, I really want to eat this meal with my disciples. What was the first thing he did on that resurrection morning? A fish fry on the beach. Our God is not a heavenly killjoy. Now to be clear, the call to enjoy a meal, it's not talking about a pursuit of extravagance. These are just ordinary, everyday facets of life. No, the teacher, he's calling you to be satisfied with a simple life given to you 
by a sovereign father. So enjoy a good meal, eat and drink to the glory of God, and enjoy your relationships. Verse 9. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Now he's focusing here on marriage, the most intimate relationship that we have. But I think the principle of what he's talking about extends to all of our relationships, both family and Friends, right? We, we know from earlier in Ecclesiastes that two are better than one. We, we desperately need community. We need other believers in our lives. And that's because our lives will be over sooner than we think. So enjoy the people God has put in your path today. Orient your life for the good of others. Lower your defenses. Let them in. Enjoy your friendships and help others enjoy those same friendships. This is why you'll hear us every Sunday encouraging you to find a growth group. Because when we go to growth group, it's not just a time to learn from each other or pray with each other, although those are great things. It's a time to enjoy life with each other. We don't just go there to grow in our knowledge. We want to grow in our joy, the purpose of all of our gatherings as a church is our progress and joy in the faith. Now, to focus on marriage specifically for a moment, I would suggest you married couples find some time to get alone, read this text, and just reflect on your shared enjoyment of marriage. Because notice, this is a command, this is a beautiful picture of marriage to enjoy life with your spouse. God wants our marriages to be filled with joy. And ultimately, I didn't see this until last night when I was just rereading the text, but this is a picture, a glimpse of the gospel. Because all of our human marriages, they are just parables that point to the great and eternal marriage between Christ and his church. And so know, if you're a Christian, that Christ our great bridegroom. He hasn't just saved you and rescued you. No, he enjoys you and he delights in you. The prophet says that he rejoices over you with loud singing. Look to your great bridegroom and the joy of his heart in the salvation of your soul. God wants our marriages to be a reflection of that, to be filled with pure, unadulterated, holy joy. But now you might be thinking, my marriage is so far from that, that we've not had joy in our marriage in years or in decades. I want to tell you that there is hope for you. You can look to Christ who loved his bride, the church, and gave up his life for her and now enjoys life with her. He can restore everything that has been broken by sin. Look to him. If you are divorced or widowed, look to him. 
Marriage is just a small, earthly, broken picture of that perfect, eternal, heavenly marriage. Look to Christ as your great bridegroom. Only joy and satisfaction will come from him. Solomon's message here, it's for both sturdy marriages and crumbling marriages. Recognize that your life is vain. That is, it is fleeting. It's a vapor. It's temporary. And you will not be married forever. Till death do us part will eventually come true. So treasure the gift that God has given you in your spouse and treasure every moment with them. Don't just live in the same house. Don't just put up with them. Enjoy them while you still draw breath. And have that perspective for all your friendships. And next, enjoy your work. Verse 10. (laughs) Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. The Lord wants us to make our lives count. To work towards accomplishing something with our few days here on earth. Because he says there's no work to do in Sheol. That's just the place of the dead, the grave. It's not heaven. It's not hell. It's just being dead. Saying once you're dead, that's it. We live our lives here for eternity. But then there is no second chances past the grave. As the old saying goes, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. So find something to do and get to it. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it. Cultivate God's good creation. Help humanity to flourish. Build up his church and extend his kingdom. God wants us to build houses and paint portraits and lead Bible studies and fix cars and compose music and plant flowers and plant churches and compete in sports and fill in spreadsheets and cook meals and draft legislation and code software and care for the poor and perform surgery and pilot airplanes and raise children and make disciples. You won't be alive forever. So get off the couch and do something. Get some blisters. Work hard. And make your life count. And again, there could be pain in this text as well. If you're sitting here and thinking, my life up till this point has been wasted. I've done nothing of eternal value with my life. The message here is that as long as you have breath in your lungs, there is hope for you. The living have hope. It is not too late. By the grace of God and by the Spirit of God, today you can begin to serve the Lord, to work for His glory, and to accomplish something for Him. Don't waste your life. So God's invitation to us is to enjoy a meal Enjoy your relationships. Enjoy your work all before the face of God. If you're not a Christian, this is God's invitation to joy. Embrace it. And if you are a Christian, 
This is God's invitation to deeper joy. Embrace it. The bitterness of death helps us taste the sweetness of life. So take joy, dear saints, and be merry in your heart. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for giving us these good words, these hard words about death, and these beautiful words about life. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have passed through death on our behalf, that the grave has been defeated, that death has died in the death of you, Christ Jesus. Help us to get out of the shadow of the fear of death and to live in light of the eternal joy that you've called us to. Help us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would take these words that you wrote and you would imprint them on our hearts. Help us to live with this perspective. Help us to know that we are going to die and yet to take joy in you and your gifts. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we give you all the glory. Amen.